0: Basically, here, here's the deal. If you don't feel comfortable yet coming back, then by all means, continue to watch online, but it, it's time. And so we are thankful uh, that God has brought us here and uh, cannot wait to, to see many of you in person. With that said, if you have your Bibles, I trust that you do. If you could open with me to Romans chapter 1. Welcome to week three of our study through the book of Romans a study that we are calling Foundations of Faith. And last week we focused on verses 16 and 17 and the power of the gospel to save all who believe along with the revelation of righteousness by faith. So we need a righteousness that we don't have. God judges us based on the righteousness that we don't have and God in His grace gives us the righteousness that we need all by faith. Faith. And this morning, we come to a different revelation. So Romans 1:16 and 17 was the revelation of righteousness. Romans 1, 18 through 32 is the revelation of wrath, of, of God's wrath. And as we begin this morning, I want to tell you a story, and I want all of you to play along with me at home. So when I read a line of good news, I want you to shout, all right, and when I read a line of bad news, I want you to shout, oh, no. So um, here we go. And just so you know, the first line is going to be good news. So get ready for the all right together. So a man went up in an airplane. All right. But the airplane's engine died. But the man had a parachute. All right. But the parachute didn't open. Oh. Thankfully, there was a haystack directly underneath him, All right. but there was a pitchfork in the haystack. Oh, no. <laughs> Miraculously, the man missed the pitchfork, All right. but he also missed the haystack. Oh, no. The end. All right. So the airplane ride by Dr. John Firbin is a hu- kind of a humorous story that alternates back and forth between good news and bad news. Has anyone ever come to you and said, hey, I have good news for you and I have bad news for you. Which one would you like to hear first? Now, at home, I'd like you to admit how many of you at home are uh, bad news first kind of people. Um, I am among that category. How many of you are good news first kind of people? You know, just this week, um, Robert Peck, our treasurer, called me and said, hey, I have some bad news and I have some good news. Now that's never good when it's the treasurer, but he can affirm that every time he tells me that, it's kind of um, randomly but a lot, I always say, hey man, let's start with the bad news and let's see if the good news can, can overshadow it or overcome the bad news. And the book of Romans is like that, um, or, or like the airplane ride. It, it alternates back and forth between good news and, and bad news. And in fact, Paul begins with the good news. The good news is verse 16 and 17. The gospel saves everyone who believes. That is the good news. But then the book of Romans moves to the bad news, that God's wrath is being revealed upon those who won't believe. For the story of Romans 1 is not a story about man's gradual ascent up the ladder of spiritual enlightenment. Romans 1 is a story of man's descent into sin, into rebellion, into Wrath. So let's dive in together to these 15 verses and hold on as we descend into depravity. So the message title today, Descending into Depravity. So let's hold on as we descend. So Romans 1, beginning at verse 18, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They not only do them, but get, give approval to them, approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and Lord, this is not an easy text today, but we pray, Lord, that we would first of all acknowledge this is your word, and your word is true, your word is right, your word is good for us. Father, I pray today as I stand behind this pulpit, as I stand upon your word, that I would not apologize for your word, That I would not apologize, Father, for what you have declared to be true in the world and through your word. And Father, today, Lord, we just pray that you would touch hearts in a way that brings glory to you. Help us to see, God, how sin has affected us all. And help us, Lord, not to be led to seeing the the speck in other people's eyes, Lord, but instead help us to see the plank in our own. Lord, help us to see ourselves for what we are. Sinners in need of your grace and mercy. Lord, speak, Father, we ask. Lord, we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated if you're at home. I just said that because Pastor Jordan's standing up. So I don't know. Maybe the rest of you were, but there we go. But here's the deal we love hearing about the love of God, we know about the mercy of God. We often sing songs about the grace of God, we stand in awe of the glory of God. We are somewhat intimidated by the holiness of God, but what about the wrath of God? We hardly ever mention it, and we definitely don't sing about it. I, I can't think of a song that we sing in church that highlights the wrath of God, but the wrath of God is a reality for the ungodly. And there there are a number of, of ways in Scripture that God expresses his wrath. There is the eternal wrath that's coming upon unbelievers. We call it the lake of fire. We call it hell. We call it the second death. Then there is the... Um, eschatological wrath, which is wrath that's going to be poured on the world when Christ comes again. So that wrath is coming. Then there is cataclysmic wrath, which is, um, in history, God has burst forth in wrath upon um, sinners pouring out His wrath. Think of the flood. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the New Testament, we think of Chorazin, Bethsaida, uh, Capernaum, where God poured out His wrath upon a people. Then we have sowing and reaping wrath where man reaps what he sows and that is a form of God's wrath and then there's the wrath of abandonment which is what we see here in Romans 1. It's where in the words of Douglas Moo the wrath of God is now visible in his abandonment of humanity to its chosen way of sin And all of its consequences. So God abandons man to suffer the consequences of their own sin. So what that means is that God's wrath is already at work in our culture. We're not waiting on God's wrath to come into our culture. We're in the middle of it. We're in the middle of God's wrath being poured upon us. And the first reason that Paul gives for God's wrath being revealed is the refusal to acknowledge that there is a God. And so what Paul tells us in verses 20 and 21 is that nature is God's first missionary. Where there is no Bible, there are sparkling stars. Where there are no preachers, there are mountains and oceans. If a person has nothing but nature, then nature is enough to reveal something about God to that person. There's not an atom in the universe in which God's power and divinity are not being revealed revealed. Scientists say that life on earth depends on multiple factors that are so precise that if even um, any of them were off by a hair, we could not exist. Scientists call it the Goldilocks principle, that things are just right in order for human life to be as it is. Just a few examples. On earth, oxygen consists or comprises 21% of the atmosphere. If oxygen were 25 Percent fires would erupt spontaneously, and we would all die. If it were 15 percent, human beings would suffocate, and again, we would all be dead. This is just a sampling of the extreme precision which our universe, and especially the Earth that we know, it was created with. Without divine intervention, life would be impossible by scientific calculations. The God of the Bible, who is who's made, he's made everything fit. And work just right. Consider the distance of the earth from the sun. If the earth were 2% closer to the sun, we'd all burn up. If the earth was 2% further away from the sun, we would all freeze and, of course, die. Then there's a the tilt of the earth, which is set at an ideal 23.5 degrees, which we've learned keeps the temperatures perfect, the, the tides um all of those things that if that did not happen temperatures would be extreme and again we would not make it one more is that jupiter if jupiter the planet wasn't the size and wasn't in the orbit that is it is in astronomers or astronomers excuse me predict that there would be 10,000 times more asteroid strikes right here on earth and of course we'd all die so the picture is all of these speak of the volumes or speak volumes about the order and sophistication of the earth's design all pointing to its creator. It's natural for us to assume that a if you see a watch, it has to have... A watchmaker. If you take the contents of a watch and you throw them all up in the air, would you expect them all to fall back to earth precisely in the correct order and positioning as a watch and then begin to tick? No, you, you wouldn't. Because there's if there's a design, there is a designer. Meaning, No one will be able to approach the judgment seat of God justly pleading, if I only knew that you existed, God, I would have served you. That excuse has been annihilated. No one can lightly claim insufficient evidence for not believing in God. Or to put it this way, all creation is an outstretched finger pointing to God. All creation is an outstretched finger pointing to God. Yet the effects of sin don't just stop with denying um, the God of creation. Sin goes further. Sin is our biggest enemy. Original sin distorts us. Actual sin distracts us. Indwelling sin manipulates us. So I want us to turn our focus to four realities of sin found in these 15 verses. And the effects that they have on us. And this is not going to be an easy message. And none of us are going to get off without being hit today. So I just pray that we would enter into this time with humility. Understanding who we are according to the word of God. So the first reality is this. Number one, sin plagues our worship. Sin plagues our worship. If you look at verses 21, verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Verse 25 says, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 21 is some of the saddest words in the Bible. They knew God. Yet, even though they knew God, they refused to honor God as God. God. And what happens when people refuse to acknowledge and honor God as God? What happens is we don't just stop worshiping. We just find someone or something else to worship. And Paul says in verse 23 that we always begin with ourselves. He says it here. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling, first of all, mortal man. We always start by worshiping ourselves. For you see, someone has said that we are gigantic me monsters. All of us, were gigantic me monsters. We want to be the center of our story. We want to make the rules or we want to be the point. We want to be the point. We want life to be about us. We want all things to revolve around us as if we are the center. Therefore, self-worship is an easy place to start. And the truth that we will find or or. We'll begin to make something to worship. No one lives in a vacuum. Either we worship God or we will replace him with a God of our own making or a God of our own choosing. Someone has said, You may find cities without walls or literature. You might find cities without kings or queens. You might find cities without houses or wealth or money. You might even find cities without gymnasiums or theaters, but no one has ever found a city without temples or gods. You will always, we will always find something to worship. If we abandon the worship of God, some other object will be found to take the place of our Creator. If if we will not worship the true God, we will worship a false God, even if we have to make that false God with our own fragile hands. The greatest honor that God did to man is that God made us in His own image. The greatest dishonor that we do to God is that we try to recreate a God into our image. And brothers and sisters, it just doesn't work. We reject God in doing that. Dr. Donald Donald Barnhouse wrote these words, God gave man brains to see things, these things. And the sorrowful answer is that God gave man brains, for example, to smelt iron and make a hammerhead and nails. And God grows a tree and gives man strength to cut it down and brains to fashion a hammer handle from its wood. And when man has the hammer and the nails, God will put out his hand and let man drive those nails through it, place them on a cross in the supreme demonstration that men reject God. Rejection. God gives the truth. And man turns away from the truth into false worship. Brothers and sisters, we are worshipers. You will find something or someone to worship. Sin plagues our worship. But then secondly, sin disrupts our beliefs. Sin disrupts our beliefs, what we believe. Verse 18 says, Men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 21, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they become fools. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So Paul tells us that whenever the truth starts to exert itself or whenever the truth makes us feel uncomfortable, we will hold it down meaning the truth and lies are in a fight, and oftentimes we choose to drown the truth. We, we drown its voices, the voice of truth, by rushing into rampant sin, or we strangle the convicting voice of truth by human arguments and human denial. Brothers and sisters, when we suppress truth, it won't be long before we exchange that truth for a lie. Because we think we we know better, the truths of God's word become unpalatable to us. And we find that we like the thoughts and we like the beliefs of this world so much so that we begin to believe them and celebrate them. Let me just say this. Whenever human wisdom sets itself against God, we end up placing the beliefs and ideas of man where truth alone should be place the beliefs and ideas of man where truth alone should be. And let me just show you how that plays itself out in the world. Last year, Legionnaire Ministries completed a, a state of theology survey throughout the U.S. in which, in their own words, they took the theological temperature to help Christians better understand today's culture and equip the church with better insight. So they asked um, people who do not profess to be Christians different questions, and they asked people, um, people who profess to be Christians, the same exact questions, and kind of see um, where the the thought process is, uh, how far apart we are, how close we are, and here's what they found, and again, I quote, people inside the church need clear Bible teaching just as much as those outside the church. For of those surveyed who claim to be professing Christians, get this, 30% professing believers rejected the deity of Christ. Meaning they said, we believe Jesus is a good moral teacher, maybe even a prophet, but he is not God. 46% believe that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 46% of professing Christians believe people are good by nature. What's the problem with that? The word of God is the problem with that because Romans 3 says, none are righteous, no, not one, none do good. It's what the Word of God says. 22% of professing believers think that gender identity is a matter of personal choice. We get to make that choice. 17% believe that modern science disproves the Bible. And 42% of professing believers believe that God accepts the worship of all religions as long as people are sincere even when they're sincerely wrong. And what all of that means, brothers and sisters, is that sin or pride or maybe even just sheer laziness has made us put question marks where God has put exclamation points. And we begin to question the truth of God's word as if we know better than him. Brothers and sisters, sin disrupts our beliefs. So sin, it plagues our worship, it disrupts our beliefs, and then third, sin disorders our desires. It disorders our desires, and this is where God's word gets really tough, and our time together today gets really uncomfortable. For Paul writes in verses 26 and 27, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And verse 27 and the men likewise, and were consumed with passion for one another. This is the longest and the clearest passage in the Bible on homosexuality. And this is where I must now, as a minister of the Word of God, as your pastor, I must now affirm that the Bible clearly declares that all sexual activity should be limited to a monogamous, that is exclusive, heterosexual, that is one man and one woman, marital, that is inside covenant relationship. Amen. Let me say it one more time. All sexual activity should be limited to monogamous, that is exclusive, heterosexual, one man, one woman, marital, inside marital covenant relationship. God established this model for sexual relationship in in the book of Genesis. He enforced it through the law of Moses. He illustrated it through Old Testament narratives. It was affirmed by Jesus in the Gospels and reiterated by Paul in the book of Romans here and throughout Paul's other letters. It is an unavoidable fact that the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. Now, I know people try to say, well, it's different now than it was then. And let me just say, homosexuality was so rampant in the Roman Empire that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors practiced homosexuality and represented the greatest offense to Jewish sexual sensibilities. So Jewish and Gentile believers in the church at Rome, when they looked around the society in which they lived, they would have seen homosexuality practiced and encouraged at every turn, meaning not much different in the world that we live in. But the question becomes, why does Paul focus on homosexual relationships here? Tom Schreiner puts it this way. Homosexuality functions as a fitting illustration of that which is unnatural in the sexual sphere. Idolatry is unnatural in the sense that it is contrary to God's intention for human beings. Just as idolatry is a violation and perversion of what God intended, so too same-sex relations are contrary to what God planned when he created man and woman. Schreiner also adds, the fundamental sin isn't sexual, but the failure to worship God as God. All other sins is a consequence of this one. Let me just say this this morning, brothers and sisters, as homosexuality has become more pervasive and socially acceptable in our society, in fact, there has been a sex change in our society, and what I mean by that is over the last... 20, 30 years, the ideas and thoughts of our world concerning all things sex have completely changed and been distorted like no other time in history. The way we accept it and the way it's um, pushed upon us. And, but here's the deal. In the midst of this changing culture that we live in, the church of Jesus Christ has struggled in its response on this issue. And what I mean by that is this, on one hand, some Christians and churches have responded with hostility and even hatred towards those with same-sex attraction. And this is wrong because in showing hatred for those with same-sex attraction, we have lost the biblical truth that those individuals have been created in the image of God. They've been created in the very image of God. Let me be very clear this morning. And please hear this. Struggling with same-sex attraction doesn't send someone straight to hell. You know how I know that? Because being heterosexual doesn't send you straight to heaven. This is a truth that we have to hold to. Um, what sends someone to hell is the refusal to allow Jesus to be the Lord of their life. What allows someone to enter to heaven is to bow the knee to Jesus as Savior and Lord. So some churches and Christians have looked upon those with same-sex attraction as the enemy as um, hating them. Now on the other hand, some churches have abandoned the clear biblical teaching and have given their approval to sexual practices that God's word identifies as sin. Now over the last few years, many have attempted to suggest that the traditional understanding of Romans 1, 26 and 27 has been mistaken. So we've been mistaken for the last 2,000 years of, of church history. And they've basically come up with the idea of, no, um, Paul wasn't speaking about homosexuals in the, in the way that we view it. Paul was speaking about, first of all, people say, Paul was speaking about anybody who sinned against their own nature. Meaning that God made us all in a certain way, and if we're not careful, we'll sin against the way that God made us. Or other people say, no. What Paul was saying here and in, in, in this picture is he was he was saying that people, um, the homosexual acts were people who would sin outside of a monogamous relationship. They were in a homosexual relationship, but they sinned and went outside of that and sinned against the person that they were with. And then others say, no. This is a picture of uh, Paul saying um, not homosexual relationship, but relationship with. With children. And and that's the bad part. And of course, yes, we would absolutely echo that. But here's the reality when Paul uses the expression unnatural relations, it means against nature. That means that homosexuality is a violation of God's ordained design, that God made it the way He made it for a reason, for His glory. Rosario Butterfield, who was a former practicing lesbian, a professor of literature and women's studies at University of Syracuse, says in her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be God is. A desire to be the one who gets to declare good and evil, to play judge rather than be judged, a desire to use God's creation for our own gratification rather than for his glory. And that means, if that's true, and I believe it is, that means that repentance for a gay and les- or gay and lesbian person looks fundamentally the same as repentance for a straight and even a religious person. The good news is that Jesus came to save sinners. Hear me this morning, all sinners. Jesus came to save sinners all sinners, all kinds of sinners. We only can grasp the gospel when we understand, as Paul did, that we are the worst sinner that we know. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. And we come to realize if Jesus can save us, then he can save anyone. I love the words of Martin Luther that says, when I look at my sin, I say, how could God ever save me? But when I look at Jesus, I say, how can I not be saved? How can I not be saved? In my sin, how can God save me? But I look to Jesus. How can I not be saved? And let me say this clearly today. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. Unrepentant sin leaves people, all people, outside of the kingdom of God. But it does not leave leave people outside of God's reach. Even in unrepentant sin, God is reaching he is reaching. His grace is reaching to us and to you, even in the midst of unrepentant sin. And let, let me be very careful here and be very clear here. The church at Jesus Christ, we have got this so wrong because here's what we, if, if you were to do a survey across um, most churches and you ask people, is homosexuality a sin? Most people are going to say, absolutely. But if you ask people, well, what about a man and a woman living together outside of marriage. What about fornication? What about those things? We go, well, and yet in one standpoint, we can say, well, that's a natural thing that God made that, but here's the reality. Oftentimes, we assent to things that God doesn't. We find ourselves going, well, it's not that bad when God says any sexual relationship outside of marriage of one man and one woman is a sin. It is what God's word has declared. So we can't sit here and find ourselves accepting that which God has declared to be sin. Let me say it clearly. Can a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction struggle faithfully in the Lord? And the answer is absolutely. For if we're being honest, everyone is struggling with something. And if you're the today at home, and you don't, you're not struggling with sin, I have bad news for you. You're dead. If you're not struggling with sin, you are dead. You, you need to call somebody and say, hey, come check on me. I think I'm dead. If you're not struggling with, or let me just go a step further. If you're not struggling with sin, it means you're out. It means you're out. It means you're no longer seeking the Lord. You're no longer trying to follow him. That you have taken yourself out of the race. Brothers and sisters, sin disorders our desires. And then lastly, sin torments our behavior. Sin torments our behavior. Paul's approach to homosexuality is that he listed, get this, as one of many examples of the corruption that comes into a society that rejects God and puts ourselves where God alone should be. Therefore, Paul writes in verses 29-31, through They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, means prideful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is the longest list of this type in the New Testament. And the reality here is that Paul does not let any of us off the hook. Paul does not let you off the hook or me off the hook, for all of us find ourselves here. If I read through this again, you would find yourself here somewhere. And this is where we see the true or our true descent into depravity. Not that everything that we do is completely sinful, but nothing that we do is completely untouched by sin. Let me say it again. Not everything that we do is completely sinful, but nothing that we do is completely untouched by sin. So the point, so Paul addresses homosexuality and then he addresses all sin, and his point is to draw us out. Paul knew the that the self-righteous religious Jew would hear the previous verses and would say like many times we do, you're so right, Paul, those ungodly people are worthy of God's wrath, and I'm so glad you're exposing the homosexual, the homosexual. I'm so glad I'm not like them. Paul knew exactly what our self-righteous hearts would do, and let me tell you what Paul's doing. Paul is writing this in order to show us that we are just like them in our struggle with sin. We are like them in our struggle. We all struggle with sin. Let me say it again. We all struggle with sin. And if you think you don't, you are either lying to yourself or you are telling the truth because you have ceased to struggle, meaning that sin doesn't bother you anymore, meaning that you have completely given in to sin, that you've completely become okay with sin, and that's a terrible place to be. Oh, to God that we would struggle against sin. That we would struggle and wrestle and fight with every fiber of our being against sin. And when sin wins, we fall upon our face before the God who forgives. And we live by His grace to fight another day. To fight another day. But as we study these verses, we see in verse 24, God giving people over to sinful worship. They won't worship God, so they will worship something. In verse 26, God gives them over to sinful worship. Lust, which affects the heterosexual and the homosexual alike. In verse 28, God gives us over to a depraved mind. And don't miss it. The idolatry, the sexual perversion, the increase of all of these sins is not just the reason for God's judgment. It is God's judgment. So all of these things are not... Just the reason for God's judgment, according to the Apostle Paul, they are God's judgment. Sin running rampant in our day is not just a precursor to coming judgment, it is the judgment of God. Friends, this is indeed the bad news of the gospel. The bad news that even one sin against an eternal holy God deserves the wrath of God, And here's the bad news. We're not just guilty of one sin. We are guilty of thousands upon thousands of sins. This is why we all desperately need the grace and mercy of God. But let me say this this morning, and please hear this. In order to receive that grace and mercy, we must declare over our lives what God has declared over us we have sinned we have fallen short of the glory of God we have chosen our to worship ourselves instead of worshiping God we have chosen our beliefs over what God has declared to be true and right and good for us we have chosen our desires above what God desires for us and we have chosen our own behavior Regardless of what God says, we're going to do it our way. We have to acknowledge, brothers and sisters, that we are sinners. We are sinners before a holy God, and we need a Savior. We need a Savior. And Jesus is the only Savior of sinners in the world. That's the the bad news, is we need a Savior. The good news is we have one. And when you have that Savior, brothers and sisters, you don't have to be ashamed of the gospel. And not only according to verses 16 and 17 as we read last week, not only do you not have to be ashamed of the gospel, you don't have to be afraid of the wrath of God. For Jesus endured for us what we were deserving of. Jesus took on our sin. Whatever that sin is, it was against him and he took it on so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Do you know him today? Do you know him today? In the words of the hymn, do not turn him away. Do not turn him away today. Do not run from him. Do not choose your own way. Turn to him. He will save you. There is not a sin that Jesus did not die for. He will save you even now. And brothers and sisters, let me say this, for those of us that find ourselves, maybe the struggle with sin isn't as strong as it used to be, and if it's that way, either one of two things is true, either we are, we have become super Christians, we have become so amazingly holy that sin doesn't bother us anymore, the likelihood of that, since I know most of you, would be zero percent, the likelihood of that in my life is zero percent, so That's probably not likely. Here's probably the more likely thing. We have become okay with sin. What we used to not endorse, what we used to not laugh at, what we used to not tolerate, we now laugh at. We now tolerate. We now let in. Brothers and sisters, if that's us today, I believe right now that the Holy Spirit is making that abundantly clear. We need to be careful what we let in. We need to be careful what we believe and what we laugh at and what we allow in, not just to our minds, but to our hearts. Oh, to God, that we would call sin, sin, but at the same time understanding that even the worst of sinners needs Jesus because we, the worst of sinners, needed him. And we would take that message. a lost and dying world declaring to them that Jesus saves with that said let us pray together fathers we just end this time together and lord in this uh, tough time together in your word I thank you that your word doesn't leave out anything that your word is abundantly clear God that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God And Lord, the reality today is that we could have probably had four messages today over um, all of these topics. But for the sake of being true to the text, we wanted to do as as Paul did and addressing these together. But Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, that you would work in the hearts and lives of those that are listening. But regardless of what our struggle is, Lord, help us to see, God, that the call, your calling over us is to repent turn from those struggles, to turn to you as our Savior and Lord, to receive that which you give to us, salvation, forgiveness, freedom. God, I pray today that you would deliver someone today, Lord, from death to life, that you would bring someone, even in this moment, from darkness into marvelous light. Not because of a message targeting any one sin, but because of the reality, Lord, that all of us must confess that we're sinners, that we have sinned against you. We are worthy of your wrath, we are worthy of death. We are unworthy of your Son, and yet you, but yet you still sin. Oh today that someone would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Lord, I pray, God, specifically right now for brothers and sisters who have gotten comfortable with sin. We've gotten comfortable, Lord, with letting things that we used to disagree with, letting them into our hearts and lives and even to our beliefs, so much so that we maybe even began to question your word or we just ignore parts of your word altogether. God, convict us of those things. Forgive us. Lord, help us to be a people that stand for truth, but also a people that extend your truth to all people. Just finish this time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. I pray that God would use his word on this big boulder that was dropped into the ocean today to send ripple effects into our our lives and just do what God intended for his word to do today. I do pray that you would um, come and join us on Wednesday night as we will once again be meeting. Lord willing, unless we have something else that that happens, we are planning, Lord willing, on being here Wednesday. And then next Sunday morning, 930 and 11 o'clock, life groups moving forward as normal. And I hope to to see you. Can't wait to see you. Um, Love you. And uh, Lord willing, we'll see you soon.